Philippians, um, first chapter, 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We're currently working our way uh, through the great and helpful book of Philippians. Uh, this is a teaching series that we're calling For Our Joy. Going through the book of Philippians, talking about For Our Joy. That's what we're titling this uh, sort of teaching series because uh, as many scholars point out, this epistle, this book, uh, Philippians, is saturated with mentions of, of deep and lasting joy. Deep and lasting joy that is found in Christ. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at joy in adversity. Joy in adversity. Um, let, let me start with praying for us and then we'll, and then we'll get to work, okay? I'm going to pray with me. Father, thank you uh, that, in, uh, that, that every person in this, in this room here matters to you. And we pray that, that you, would, you would teach us this morning by your word, that you would empower us by your spirit to, to learn from Philippians 1 uh, how to suffer well. And find deep joy even in adversity. That through the hard stuff of life, you would just do something in us that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do in ourselves without you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're, we're, uh, we're looking at Philippians 1 to, to, to learn something about finding joy in adversity. And by adversity, what we really mean is just, there's just the hard stuff of life. Right? That's what adversity is, suffering, hardships, not just, not just the hard stuff out there, but the hard stuff like right in here, right? Like the trenches of, uh, of everyday life. And the dilemma for us this morning is, is how do we find joy in stuff like that? How do we find joy in adversity? And some of you this morning are hearing that question, and you're like, yeah, amen right now. Because you know what it's like to have a tough day. You know what it's like to suffer, to, to face adversity. You know what it's like to suffer hardship, spiritual hardship, emotional hardship, physical hardship, financial hardship, or just situational, circumstantial hardship. That's crazy. Like, I actually really felt this one this week as I was studying this text. Like, th like this week has just been crazy, hard, discouraging week for me personally. Uh, and I, I was meeting with a, with a pastor earlier this week in our network, and, 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 and he, was, um, he was saying how he was preaching a similar sermon a few weeks ago and had a really rough time that week. And we were just laughing at how suddenly there, like, things just seem to get hard when you're supposed to like, preach on, on finding joy in adversity, right? He pointed out to me that I'm preaching on death next week, so you can pray for me on that. <laughs> and the question I want you to have in your mind as we walk through this text is, 
How should I face adversity as a follower of Jesus? How, sh- how should I be facing uh, adversity? How should you be facing adver- adver- adversity, suffering, letdown, setbacks in life as a follower of Jesus? Do we deal with that differently? And the reason that this is important, an important question for us to handle and wrestle with this morning is because the way that you answer that question, the way that you answer this question doesn't just matter for like your immediate circumstances in the moment, but but the way you answer this question impacts and shapes the type of person that you become over time. Your answer to this question will shape and form you into the kind of person that you're, you're going to become over time. Adversity can have the power to, to create the, the most, just the most bitter, cynical, hardened human beings. But with a gospel perspective, like we see in Paul this morning, adversity can also create some of the kindest, most gracious, and hopeful, and, and joyful people, even in adversity. And so turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, if you haven't already. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 12 through 18 and walk through three points. I'll give them to you on the front end. We're going to look at the reality of adversity. Second, with Paul's example, we're going to learn from him our resolve that we should have in adversity, our our posture, our resolve. And lastly, we're going to talk about how do we actually rejoice in adversity. So let's look at that first one. The reality of adversity. We, we, we see Paul's adversity in, in verses 12 and 13. Read those with me. Paul's writing in this church he loves, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So what's Paul's adversity here? He's in prison for his ministry. He's in prison for preaching that Jesus is Lord. You see, some of us have this kind of faulty uh, sort of thinking that, man, if, I, if I'm just faithful to Jesus, if I commit myself more to Christ and his church, then things will get easier for me. We don't see that in the New Testament. We don't see that in the life of Jesus. We don't see that here with Paul. What happened to Paul is that the rule of the land was was that Caesar is Lord. And here comes Paul with a bold counterclaim. He's going around preaching and saying, no, Jesus is Lord. And so he gets thrown into prison. And what we see in Paul's story, what we're going to see over the next half hour is that uh, when he he finds his joy ultimately in Jesus, that it's not so much that Paul's outward circumstances change, it's not that his life, get, his circumstances get easier, but that his hope gets greater. His joy can increase even in the middle of that. I want us to get sort of a, a snapshot of the type of suffering that, that Paul experienced in around this season of time. He doesn't really go into it with the, the church in, uh, when he writes this letter to the Philippians, but he does to one of his, church, to his letters to uh, the church in, in, in Corinth. And so I want you to read briefly with me 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Paul's describing here the kind of adversity that he's been going, been going through during this season of his life and ministry. 
And he tells this church, he says, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, which is when he get whipped and flogged uh, 39 times as was the tradition. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three times. I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from gentiles. Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposed and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul is living his worst life now. His worst life now. And I want you to notice that Paul, when he's writing these things, he's just brutally honest about his adversity. He's brutally honest about his adversity. He doesn't, he doesn't wallow in it, but he doesn't exactly hide it either. He doesn't throw himself a pity party. He's not like sitting in the, his prison cell corner with a bottle of wine listening to Smashing Pumpkins. But he's also not pretending that suffering in adversity doesn't exist. He's not pretending that for him as a faithful follower of Jesus, as a minister of the gospel, that suffering doesn't come to his door. He's honest with them, this church that he, he loves, that he's pastoring. He, he, he's honest with them about the fact that adversity is in his mind. He's, he, he's, not, he's not doing this out of sight, out of mind thing. But look, that's what, that, that's what, that's what some Christians try to do. And that's what some of us try to do. We try to pretend the suffering away that when it's adversity hits us, we stick our heads in the sand. Kind of like how when my kids get scared in the dark, I'll, I'll see them put their hands over their eyes so that they don't have to see the dark. Like, that'll help. And look, if, if that's the approach that you take, you're like, you need to know that suffering, evil, adversity, it still exists. You can't wish it away. You can't pretend it away. You can't out of sight, out of mind it. And it's just a matter of time before you feel its effects. And so we just need to learn how should we view it rightly? How can we find joy and hope in the middle of suffering? I want to take a moment to really lay into this reality of adversity and then talk for a moment about some of the wrong ways that we tend to look at adversity. There's really two kind of false uh, schools of looking at adversity. The first is the, the moralistic school or the moralistic view of adversity that says, you know, it's, uh, the reason that I'm going through hard stuff is either because I'm weak in my faith or there's sin in my life. It's this moralistic view. But you need to understand that adversity is not punishment for weak faith. All right? And there's a popular teaching out there that says if you have enough faith then you won't get sick and you won't go broke. And so if you're a suffering Christian, you shouldn't be comforted. What you should be is confronted and told that you just need to have more faith. And that's just called the prosperity gospel. And what you need to know is that this is a false gospel. The good news of Jesus is not that you get nice things and get to avoid hard stuff, but that you get God. And you avoid separation and alienation from Him. Doesn't mean that we don't pray for provision. By all means, pray for that. 
doesn't mean that you don't pray for healing. By all means, pray for that. I've seen and experienced God heal in the most incredible and miraculous ways. But that is not the center of the good news of the gospel. The good news is that we get God, not stuff from God. And so we need to understand that when adversity is in our life, it's not a punishment for weak faith. That's nowhere in the Bible. And with that, we also need to understand that adversity is not punishment for sin. Adversity is not punishment for sin. All right? And to be clear, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there are times where God will prune us and discipline us because he loves us, right? When we're in uh, kind of gross, unrepentant sin. He'll make us feel uncomfortable. He'll convict us. And, and things might get hard for us in, in some sense because he loves us. But to be clear, adversity is not a punishment for sin. There's this example that we read about in the scriptures when this man is born blind and, and Jesus and his disciples are with this guy and then Jesus' disciples, they ask him, he say, they say, Rabbi, teacher, is this guy blind because of his own sin or his parents' sin? Which was a common belief in that day. And Jesus' response to them was, neither. Neither one. He's blind so that the glory of God might be revealed in him. You see, God's not punishing this guy with adversity. He's given him an opportunity to be a part of displaying God's grace through his adversity. You guys tracking with that? You see, some of you need to hear that this morning. You need to hear that this morning, that your suffering and your adversity is not God punishing you. It's not God rubbing your face in your sin. God's not getting back at you for decisions that you made in college or decisions that you made years ago. If you this morning are in Christ by faith through His grace, then there is now no condemnation for you. That was our assurance of grace this morning. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. It is finished. Jesus paid it all, just like we sang. So you don't have to keep paying for it. There's also this other school of thought, this cynical view of adversity. There's really two ways to look at this cynically. You can either say, on the one hand, adversity should be avoided at all costs, because it's not part of God's plan for my life. Or you say, it can't be God's plan for my, my life, and so God, you know, God's not good for allowing me to suffer like this. And we get bitter and resentful against Him. What we need to understand is that adversity is actually not something that you should be avoiding at all costs. Like seriously, adversity and suffering is not something that you should be avoiding at all costs. I'm not saying don't avoid it in a lot of circumstances, but don't avoid it at all costs because, you know, some of us, we make decisions based on what is the path of least resistance, right? That's how we determine if this is an open door from the Lord, whatever that means. Right? What is the path of least resistance? What, is, what, what way will cause the least pain, the least conflict, the least adversity? But often, faithfulness looks like doing the hard things. Hard things that might cause us to suffer, that might cause us adversity for a while. People who believe the word and who do the word are called by the word into hard things. You see, I don't ever want to paint a picture for, for us. I don't ever want to paint a picture for this church of following Jesus that is inconsistent with what we see in the scriptures. 
All right? Like some verses that preachers avoid are verses like, like, like when Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Or when Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll probably also hate you. I mean, that's nobody's life verse, right? <laughs> but man, with a gospel perspective on adversity, in the middle of suffering, those verses will preach. They can preach to our hearts. Imagine if Paul chose the path of least resistance, didn't fulfill the ministry and the calling that he received from the Lord Jesus, didn't, didn't get arrested, didn't do anything that would get him in prison for the gospel. If Paul chose the path of least resistance, there would be no churches. He was the premier church planner of the first century. If Jesus chose the path of no diversity, we would still be dead in our sins. And we need to know that sometimes we're called into the hard places. We're called into the hard places and we can have the comfort of knowing that Jesus is there too. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We need to also understand that adversity does not mean that God is not good. Adversity does not mean that God is not in control. That he's not sovereign. You see, one of the big questions I get from skeptics is, how could God be good and in control? How could he be good and sovereign and also allow adversity and suffering to exist? Allow me to go through this. But God is a God who takes even the hardest adversities, and because he's good and because he's sovereign, he can use it for good. Use it for good in our lives. Use it for good in the lives of the people around us, the people watching us, as we'll see in Paul's life and ministry. You see, it's actually, uh, if, if, God is, if God does not exist, and if he's not good, and if he's not sovereign, then that actually minimizes our suffering. That minimizes our adversity, because then it's all in vain. There's no reason for it. We just suffer and die. But with the God of the scriptures, the God revealed to us in his word, the God that the spirit opens our eyes to, the God of the Bible who is both good and sovereign, he uses our adversity for the good of his people and for the witness to the world. There's an example of this in Genesis 50 where Joseph, looking at his brothers who tried to destroy him, he says to them, what you guys intended for me was evil, but God used it for what? For good and for the saving of many lives. Same thing happened to Jesus. Betrayed by Judas, slandered by false witnesses, suffered the greatest injustice in history on the cross, and God used it for good and the saving of many lives, including yours and mine. There's a third view of adversity we could call the biblical view, which says that adversity just the reality of human existence in a fallen world. 
It's a reality of human existence in a fallen world, but it's a reality that God does not refuse to use, that he does use for our good. The big idea with this point, with point number one, I want you to see is that adversity is a reality. Paul is experiencing adversity, we see in these verses, and what we learn from him is that there is a way to suffer adversity adversity as a Christian that is purposeful that is divinely inspired, that is purposeful and not purposeless. So now what does that look like? What does that look like? Let's look at Paul's example. Number two, our second point, our resolve in in adversity. What is our resolve? What should we commit to? Uh, Read again with me starting in verse 12, and this time we'll go to verse 14. Paul says... I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, all the suffering, beating, imprisonment, adversity, has really served to advance the gospel. What a perspective. And he says in verse 13, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14, And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are also much more bold to speak the word without fear. What we see in these verses is that Paul isn't just realistic about adversity. There are a lot of realists out there who will say, yes, don't pretend adversity away. Recognize that it's there. But Paul isn't just a realist about adversity. Here's where we see that Paul's response is unique and actually challenges our typical responses. His question isn't, what sin am I being punished for? Or how can I avoid this hardship? His question is, how is this being used by God? How is this being used by God? That is Paul's resolve in adversity. To ask questions like that. Paul is resolved to see how his adversity can be used to advance the gospel, how his obstacles can become opportunities. Paul's resolved, and therefore we should be resolved by his example. Paul's resolved to see how his adversity can be used to advance the gospel, how his obstacles have become opportunities. You know what's a huge joy slayer? A huge joy killer? It's when we can't see beyond the obstacles in front of us. When we refuse to look beyond the obstacles in front of us and we think that we're seeing the whole picture in the moment. I remember one day early in college, it was like one of the first weeks of the new school year and I I slept through my alarm and I knew that that, yeah, Jessica's just like, Ugh. I slept through my alarm, and, and uh, it's like this, this class, my first class that day was with a teacher that like just terrified me the week before, right? Like a uh, uh, strict uh, professor, and, and I slept through my alarm. I woke up late. I couldn't find my keys. I hit what honestly felt like every single red light. I got stuck in traffic because of construction and realized when I was almost at the school that I left my homework at home. And I was thinking to myself like, oh my, this is the worst day ever. Until I got to campus, I saw like three cars in the parking lot. 
and found out it's Labor Day. <laughs> There's no school. Suddenly, the best day ever. I was like three blocks from the beach. <laughs> Paul never had a posture of defeat even in suffering and adversity. He's always tuned in to the fact that he might not be seeing the whole picture. And even when he's struggling with that, he prays, God, help me see the whole picture, to, to see that God might be at work even through his obstacles, through his adversity. We see him here displaying that posture in these verses. In verse 13, we see him celebrate how his adversity has a positive effect on even his captors. Right? Verse 13, it says, he says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See, Paul sees his imprisonment as a divinely appointed opportunity to talk about Jesus. A divinely opportunity to display godly character, even in the middle of suffering, even in the middle of adversity. I mean, he's literally chained in a prison with a guard by his side. And with that situation, he, he therefore assumes this dude must be predestined before the foundation of the world. I'm going to share about Jesus with him. And he witnesses to the entire imperial guard, which, which back then was up to 9,000 men. It says they all, they all came to know his message. And we look and see Paul as a captive here of the imperial guard. Like when we're looking at, at his situation, we see him as a captive of the imperial guard. But Paul, what he sees is a captive audience in the imperial guard. You see, some of us, we feel chained to maybe a hard job. You feel chained to like a hard season of life. God forbid one day you might find yourself chained to a hospital bed, proverbially speaking, of course. Hopefully not literally. Or to some other adversity. You'll go from asking, why did God put me here? To asking, who did God put me here for? You go from asking, God, why did you put me here? Why am I going through this? To who am I going through this for? And so your adversity then isn't in vain. You share about Jesus and you model Jesus by suffering well and people's lives get impacted by that, the way that, that we see in this text. We also see now in verse 14 that Paul celebrates how his adversity has a positive effect on his co-laborers in the gospel, his fellow preachers. Not just his captors with the imperial guard, but also now with his co-laborers. We see this in verse 14 when he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear because of it. You see, some of the Christians in the area, some of even the preachers, co-laborers, fellow ministers in the gospel, in this area, they were timid, they were shy, they were embarrassed about Jesus. They didn't want to claim Christ's name out in public for fear of what might happen to them. But with Paul's faith and example, suddenly they become bold. You see, it's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord and my life belongs to him. It's one thing to say that. It's one thing to say, Jesus is my Lord and my life belongs to him. We might say that with our mouths, but it's something else entirely to actually demonstrate that with our lives and how we deal with adversity and suffering. You see, 
This is kind of hard for us to relate to as 21st century Christians living in a modern Western culture. This is hard for us to really relate to because we're not a truly persecuted people, right? We're not. I mean, we just celebrated Memorial Day. We had really brave men and women that, that have, 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 have uh, laid their lives down to preserve the rights that we take for advantage today. We're not a truly persecuted people. And it's hard for us to understand the context that Paul's writing in, to understand the intensity of the Christian experience in the first century, to connect it to our own experience. But the church's history for the majority of redemptive history is that we've been arrested, we've been killed, We've been fed to lions, burned on stakes, sawed in two, boiled alive like John was, thrown into prison like Paul, had our goods looted and homes burned like it says in Hebrews. You see, we're spoiled. We don't, we don't Christians in, in 21st century America, Orange County, middle, upper middle class life, we don't live and experience that context. And so it's hard for us to really feel the weight of this the way that the Philippian church would. But I want you to try to put yourselves in their shoes. Receive this letter from Paul, writing to them from prison. Some of these recipients are probably thinking like, whoa, wait, this could get us thrown in prison? This church thing that we're doing, gathering on the Lord's Day, receiving communion, being public about our faith before others in the Roman Empire, like that could get us thrown in prison. You got to imagine that there's some people that are hearing this letter read aloud in church for the first time from their old friend Paul that are thinking, man, I don't know if I actually do believe this. I don't know if I'm actually in. Some of you, if you received a letter like that, might be asking yourselves the the same question. What we have here in this letter from their imprisoned friend Paul is a spirit-driven resolve that he models for them. This relentless gospel optimism that emboldens the people around him. This optimism to see how God can do great things even in the most horrendous situations. You see, those who have not experienced adversity are the most likely to be shallow and superficial in their faith. Some of the strongest, like most spirit-driven believers that I've ever had the privilege of serving alongside and worshiping with were, was in, in third world countries. You see, those of us who've ex not experienced much adversity, who don't know what it's like to, to, to taste that, are most likely to be shallow and superficial. To be clear, I'm not saying that you are shallow and superficial because you haven't experienced that kind of adversity. I'm just saying it's more likely that we are. But those who have plunged into the depths of adversity, dealt with suffering, faced, smacked in the face with hardship. Know what it's like to have deep joy that can only be found in Christ. Deep joy that only Christ can give. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great London Prince of Preachers from the early 1900s, we named our, our son after him. He, he struggled with depression and anxiety for the majority of his life. 
there were times that he's 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 written in his journals and in, in his diaries where he's just like, man, I just this this is just hard. Ministry is hard. Life is hard. I just want this to be over. Strufford suffered real clinical depression and anxiety. A lot of guys over ministry in a number of years that have backstabbed him. Uh, a lot of hardships that he went through. Yet he's probably the most published. His sermons are probably the most published sermons outside of the Bible. That's why they call him the Prince of Preachers. He was a beast in the pulpit. And his church just single-handedly just transformed uh, the culture of the city and where he was at. And with that kind of hope, struggling with that kind of adversity, Spurgeon says this in his popular devotional, Morning and Evening. He describes hope. He says itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. Hope is like a star, he says. You can't see it in the sunshine of prosperity. But man, it can be discovered. It can shine in the night of adversity. And so that hopeful kind of posture that Paul was positioned to witness to spiritually lost captors and to embolden his missionally lazy co-laborers. You see, his resolve was to see how his adversity can be used to advance the gospel, can be used by God, how his obstacles can become opportunities. We'll lead us down to our third and last point. I want us to see how to rejoice now in adversity. We see the, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but we see it more clearly in the last few verses. How to rejoice in adversity. Read with me beginning in verse 15 to the end of our passage. Paul says, yeah, indeed. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? He asks. What do I do with that? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Do you see here how Paul finds joy in adversity? You see from these verses how Paul finds joy in adversity? It's by having a greater concern for the glory of Christ than the comfort of the moment. That's how we rejoice in adversity. By having a greater concern for the glory of Christ and His mission in the world than the comfort, the personal comforts of the moment. You see, Paul's pointing out to the Philippians that some preachers, some of his old preacher friends, they have impure motives. They have dark motives. They aren't about bringing glory to Jesus as much as they are about bringing glory to themselves. He, but he, we see that he cares less, that, the, the, or that these guys are guys that care less about Paul being in prison and they care more about building up their own platforms. These were guys that were happy to see Paul in chains so that they could sell more books than him, so they could get larger crowded, crowd, crowds than him. 
his reputation was sort of outgrowing their own reputation. And so they, at this moment, they lost sight of Jesus and they were just happy to see Paul in prison chains with his preaching voice muzzled. Or so they thought it was. You see, look, we need to be careful that we don't rejoice when a religious leader, particularly like a, a Christian minister, falls. We don't rejoice in that. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that some don't need to fall. All right? Like, there's some guys in ministry that probably should not be in ministry that are harming people physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually. So I'm not saying that some leaders don't need to fall, but what I'm saying is that we don't gloat in that. We don't gloat in that. We don't get bitter when another person's ministry rises either. We don't get bitter when another person's ministry rises so long as Jesus is being honored in and through that ministry. Paul is saying, look, some people only care about gospel ministry if they're playing a role, if they're getting the credit. He didn't have any concerns about these guys' message. His concern was with their motive. And it's fascinating that Paul doesn't use this opportunity here at this point in the letter to call out their character. And to be clear, there is a place to do that. There is a place to call out ungodly character, and he does it elsewhere in this letter and in plenty of other of his letters as well. But at this point in his letter, what he what I want you to see is that he just wants to celebrate, even though he's being robbed of dignity. Even though he's being robbed of dignity, Jesus is being celebrated by Paul. Jesus is being made much of by Paul and much of by even his competitors. And that's enough at this moment for Paul to rejoice. And you got to say, I, I love that. I love that example. That, that, that teaches me. You see, the rule of thumb is this. When you face adversity, your spiritual motives kind of rise to the surface. When you're faced with adversity, your spiritual, your true spiritual motives are sort of confronted. Like if, 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 if you are at the center of your life, then you will always want something from others. But if Christ is the center of your life, then you will always want something for others. That's what we see here in Paul. That's why Paul says, look, I don't, I don't need your praise. I don't need your recognition. All I care is that God's truth is going forward. See, joy is not found in the self-centered security that we have when things are going our way. Joy is not found in the self-centered security of our best life now. Joy is not found in self-centered security, but in the settled peace that God is at work even when things are at their worst. I'll say that again for you. Joy is not found in the self-centered security that we have when things are going our way, but rather it's found in the settled peace that God is at work even when things are at their worst. I have a friend uh, who he pastors a church up in, up in Anchorage, Alaska. And when their church was about five years old, uh, there's like the one like kind of urban city in, 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 the, in that area, and when their church was around five years old from their launch, they'd grown to about 100 people. 100 people, and one of his key leaders 
at the time, decided to take 70 of those 100 people and just abruptly take them and start another church just down the road. By the way, don't get any wise ideas, all right? <laughs> my friend's church, my friend's church, is, I mean, it's a lot like ours. Similar philosophy of ministry, uh, philosophy of preaching, but, but this break-off church that this, 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 this guy was uh, uh, breaking off with was very different. Like they bought a fog machine, they have bid likes, big production, the kind of stuff that attracts a big crowd, a certain kind of crowd in that area. You know what my friend did? You know what my friend did when, when, when this happened to him? It took five years to grow his church to 100 adults, and then in, in one abrupt moment, uh, one of his leaders takes uh, 70% of the, the church down, down the road. You know what my friend did, how he responded? He donated a sound system to them and prayed for them the following Sunday. He was telling me, he's like, you know, I just, this, this happened about like a, just a, a year and a half, couple years ago. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I just hope and pray that the gospel is being faithfully preached from the scriptures over there. I pray that all the time. Man, I love that. What an example that was for me. What a radical example of how to find joy even in adversity. Where does that kind of joy come from? How do, we, how do we find joy in adversity? It's by embracing the reality that God not only works in spite of our hardships, but rather he works through them. That's how you find joy in adversity. You ask God to give you eyes to see and to embrace the reality that God not only works in spite of our hardships, but he actually works, he rather works, he prefers to work through them. And that is the mysterious beauty of how our good God of the cross works. The mysterious beauty of the God of the cross. Paul says, I was chained, but the gospel was unchained. He said, I was in prison, but these guys I was preaching to were liberated. He says, people were competing with me, but man, the gospel advanced. What an example. And that's just like our God. That's just like our God, the work in those ways. Like That is just like our Jesus, the King of the cross. The great God who came in a manger. The great creator who stepped into a broken, stained creation. The one who gives us life through his own brutal death. Who saves us through his own adversity on the cross and promises to stand with us even when we're feeling alone, even in our own adversity. And to be clear, you will suffer adversity. You will suffer adversity. I pray that you don't. I regularly pray, for those of us that call King's Cross home, I regularly pray that you guys don't. But I also pray that when you do, that you'll suffer well. You will suffer adversity, suffering at some point. The world is broken. The world is broken. And Jesus, through his life, death, and the resurrection, is restoring it for sure. But it still currently bears the marks of sin and adversity. And so you will suffer adversity, but when you do, suffer it well. Like Paul, 
like Jesus, like the apostles, like Spurgeon, like so many of the saints, the cloud of witnesses that we stand upon, like so many before us, like my friend in Alaska, suffer well for the glory of God and the good of others. Let Christ use adversity in your life to do something good in you and to do something good through you. Do not waste your suffering. Do not suffer in vain. Use it. Invest it to display the glory of Jesus, to strengthen the people around you who know him, and to reach those who need to know him. I'll close with a quote I read this week from a church history book. It it quoted this Russian militant. He was an atheist. He was actually hired by Stalin to extinguish Christianity. He tried to get rid of Christians, but he failed miserably. And when he kept failing miserably again and again to try and snuff out these churches and stop Christianity from growing uh, throughout uh, the region, he said this. He described Christianity like a nail. He said, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. And that just pissed him off. (laughs) Christianity is like a nail, he said. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. (coughs) He was annoyed that when Christians suffered persecution at his hands, the church only strengthened. That when Christians get hammered by adversity. He was annoyed that they rejoiced not in the pain of the hammering, but in the, of, <clears throat> they rejoiced uh, not in the pain of the hammering, but in the depth of its impact. That we go deeper in Christ, deeper in the gospel, wider in our witness. It spreads actually through our adversity. Why? Because the church is there, knew that they could echo the words of the suffering Paul who said, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Obstacles turn into opportunities. And we today are privileged to participate with Jesus in his work of sovereign grace in the same way. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.